So why don't we just go ahead and, and turn to Mark 8, uh, 34 to 38. Christian, would you read those verses for us, please? Mark 8, 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We don't usually talk about these verses when we talk about salvation, do we? Do they have anything to do with salvation, or is this a byproduct of salvation? It has a lot to do with it. <laughs> okay, can you unpack that for us? It's uh, really opposite of what God is a God of love. It's really showing the man is in the love and giving then he's selfish he's looking out for himself so it'd be the antithesis of, of God okay if we go back to the premise that I use mm -hmm. and especially in the gospels for what salvation is salvation is not salvation from God it's salvation from sin and if sin is selfishness then this is all about salvation isn't it mm -hmm. Saving us from ourselves, from uh, a self-focus. Isn't it true that when we become full of self-interest, uh, we defeat everything, including ourselves? I'm trying to think of his name. There's a rabbi who's fairly prominent uh, and has made uh, quite an impact on society who talks about economics in terms of self-interest and states that if we don't move away from the principle of self-interest, which originally economics was not so much built on that principle, but in, in more recent years it has become very much self-interest mm -hmm. as, as the basic principle of economics. And he says if we don't move from that principle, our, our economy is going to go under. I mean, it's, it's going to die. So when Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. And he's talking literal terms, uh, physically losing our lives. Which in his day was very real, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Doug and I were watching a film, uh, what is that called, the... Holy City. City, City of Joy. City of Joy. And uh, there was a phrase in there where it says, uh, one of the sort of concepts was that if what you don't give away in your life is lost. And that relates to that, that verse that uh, if we don't give, then it all is lost. It was, uh, seems like a real law, you know, altruism of anything in, in nature and ourselves and relationships always always know 
when a, a client is getting well to say, well, Doug, how was your day? You know, well, when you can focus out when it's all about you and focus on you, we seem to go down that dark hole. God made us to give and to, to and um, if we don't, if we don't have that altruistic focus, um, mm -hmm. like you mentioned, economy. It's interesting. Is politically what we're what we're, you know, the rich have got richer and the poor have got poor and the selfish, you know, mm -hmm. ripping off. You know, it destroys. It's a destructive where we don't share or give. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can say enough about the importance of, of this principle. Um, and I fear that even within the church, our tendency can get to be to save the church at all costs, rather than to save the world. Um, and, and when we get that, that self-focus of, of it's about us, the church, instead of it's about God, it's about getting... Uh, helping people form relationships with God. It's a, it's a sure way to kill the church. And we talked about this in a sense last week when we talked about little churches that are dying um, because of, of a few members who have this very intense self-focus. Uh, and just, just uh, you know, I don't know depth about it, but just... Uh, been a couple of years working on pain clinic recently, and and it is physically that our body is not made to to just self protect and to when you when you pull in um, the systems don't even work right. <laughs> you get like uh, and you get this selfishness, and then it becomes fear and holding in, and, and you know it's. And the healing thing is, you know, perfect love casts out fear. You know, this whole principle of God gave us to love and to give and to share. It's extremely, it is, like we look at our um, immune systems, which are just, that's what breaks down. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's really that love and giving and support and, not focus on yourself heals you. Actually, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, 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 while you were talking about this, I was thinking of of what the body actually does um, when you have physical pain somewhere. Yeah. Say, say it's back pain. Uh, the body gets very self-focused if if you allow it, and it starts uh, trying to protect it from the pain, trying to stop yeah. the pain. And in the process, you get paralyzed or you get uh, immobilized, so, so a frozen shoulder or uh, difficulty walking or, or what have you. Uh, as, the, as the body's mechanism of, of trying to protect you from that pain, and it's and it's very rooted in psycho in psychology because I've been a, a victim of frozen shoulder twice, mm. and uh, what I found in each time that if I faced the pain. Uh, fighting it uh, and breaking out of it because yeah, because uh, that frozen shoulder is the result of encapsulitis uh, where everything starts gluing together and, and just then you have to break that encapsulation and that's where it's very painful I found that if I psychologically resisted the temptation to feel sorry for myself resisted the temptation to uh, 
not work into the pain as far as I could go. Mm-hmm. Resisted the temptation to uh, just protect myself. I found that if I did that, I was trapped. And the only way out was to face that pain and, and to uh, stop protecting myself from it. Uh, so that's just on the physical level, physical, emotional, and mental level. Mm-hmm. How much more on the spiritual and emotional mm-hmm. levels. The, uh, the verse 34... Uh, I mean, 35, it seems like to understand if you're trying to save your life, why are you going to lose it? It makes kind of sense. And uh, if you lose your life for his sake, you'll save it. I mean, it doesn't really make sense unless, it seems to me, unless we understand the big controversy going on. Mm-hmm. That when Adam and Eve were here, they're they're uh, naming the animals and so forth. They're supposed to procreate in that. The whole point of that was that they were supposed to demonstrate uh, God's love and his what he who he is because he's being accused. Mm-hmm. But then when they failed that and Christ came to continue that process, so I take it to mean that we're supposed to really continue. That's why we're doing this is mm-hmm. is we're continuing the process of showing who God is. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then it makes more sense, verse 35. Yeah, we, we model what Jesus came to do because that's what reveals who God is. Who God is. Right. And you think of... That's uh, the big controversy. How, how, many, how many people who have pioneered in, in countries where uh, the gospel has never gone and where there's resistance and, and maybe animosity and hostility... Mm-hmm. Uh, they have only been successful if they have been willing to lose their life, as it were. Um, and I think of we have someone now in our community uh, who really, I think, emulated that, and that is um, James Appel, who is a physician. Um, spent years and years in chat. I mean, far beyond what I... I, I believe he went there originally to pay back the general conference. You know, there's this this uh, ability that uh, physicians have. The general yeah, conference pays their their uh, way. Then they serve for five years, I think it is, uh, in payment. He served far beyond that. And while he was there, he lost at least one of his children to illness. Hmm. And that child is buried in Chad. So here's, here's a person who, who has really emulated the, the losing his life because when a parent loses a child, it's akin to losing your own life. Um, and now he's back here teaching for us a course called Adventism and Islam, uh, which, yeah, which I, I hope will spawn something bigger than that. I want to move to verse... 38. If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What connection does this verse have to what the verses have above? I think it's being ashamed of 
of the message because essentially we're supposed to lose our life for the sake of the message, for the sake of the gospel and the good news. Um, so have that mentality too. Sometimes, sometimes it's easier to lay down our physical life than it is to lay down our reputation. Is that possible? Yeah. Because isn't our shame, being ashamed of the gospel, always in connection with the what he calls this adulterous and sinful na- uh, world? Uh, it's what the world thinks of us. It's what mm-hmm. pe- other people think of us. And when that becomes preeminent, the preeminent kind of focus of our mm-hmm. lives is, is to make sure that people think well of us. That was probably one of the hardest environments I ever was in in graduate school if, if you were faith based or Christian based it was you were, it's not that you just weren't unprofessional it was laughable mm-hmm. it was when you're in a deep humanistic system like mm-hmm. that was in psychology and mental health and there and the, the whole environment but that was really difficult I never faced an environment like that Mm-hmm. Where you know the real, because you want to be, especially as a student, you want to be accepted. You want to be thought well by your professors, and where they. <clears throat> and I remember one of them just cussing me out, as I, I didn't get the tape shut off. <laughs> one of my sessions, I thought I turned the tape off. They were monitoring it, and he said, "What is that blankety blankety blank? Do you think you're doing?" And I had, you know, I was young and ignorant, and was. It was a faith-based client, but in that university, you didn't dare engage in that, even if the client was wanting mm-hmm. <laughs> their value system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had my moments in the same institution. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> um, my. Uh, major, my former advisor, and still on my dissertation committee, showed up drunk to my proposal meeting and uh, he didn't cuss me out but he was blasting my proposal and uh, I had handed it to him at the previous meeting which I did my oral oral defense uh, of my comps and uh, apparently had thrown it away because he claimed he didn't have it <laughs> so yeah those those are moments that we look back on and yet you know if you if you let God guide your life uh, he has a way of bringing things around yeah Gene can, can we ask what 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 level of relationship or depth to, you know this is an ideal point you know, right. not, most of us aren't there right but what helps us get to that point we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ we're we're you know we're we're, uh, we're on a personal on a personal level. What holds us to that? To I sometimes think it's just plain courage, getting getting courage, <laughs> getting the gift of courage, the maybe. gift of courage, um, the the fearlessness. And yet, I've had moments in my life where I was faced with opposition of some kind. Yeah. And which I knew the outcome, if I said certain things, would be negative. And it was like, no, I had, I had to do what I had to do. And it, it felt like a calling. It felt like an, an empowerment to do it and not spare myself. Just, okay, yeah. 
I'm go for it. Concerned about the outcome. You just do the yeah. right thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is a place I should tell the story, uh, but I one time addressed a general conference president on this campus who was proposing something that to me was completely opposed to the principles of God's government. And uh, I wasn't going to say a thing. I was, I was very troubled. Uh, the department had had a meeting with this person, and uh, there were only two of us that didn't agree with what was going on. And we were very... We stayed up till 11 o'clock unpacking what had been said and, and wondering where we were headed. And, and the next day, I ran into my mentor uh, from my master's degree, and he asked me if I was going to say anything, and he suggested that maybe I had come to the kingdom for such for a time as this. Oh, no. Oh, no. And I was, I, I was like, I wasn't going to say anything. And I said, well, I'll go home and pray about it. And yeah. I had the lunch hour to do that. I, the meeting was at 4 o'clock with the faculty. Mm. So I, I went home, and I prayed about it. And I said, God, you know, I can't say anything unless you show me what to say and, and give me something to say. And I picked up Christ's object lessons and mm. flipping through it came to the perfect, perfect paragraph or two that addressed the situation. And I was like, okay, I think I'm on. I think I, think I have to do this. And uh, so I went to that meeting, and as I sat there, I, I sat there praying. I said, God, you've got to show me what to say. You've got to show me when to say it. Uh, and when it was the turn for the faculty from the audience to respond, I knew I had to be first. I was just very clear on that. And one of the things in my life that I've known is that God is always clear when he wants me to do something. Mm -hmm. it's, it's never muddy. That's kind of how I know he's, he's guiding me, is yeah. that it is clear. And uh, so I raised my hand and got the microphone and asked a couple of very important questions. And uh, it, got, it got pretty warm. In, in discussion back and forth. Um, and I was about to come for round three when uh, the, the professor who agreed with me and we had talked the night before put his arm literally across my chest and said, don't say any more. <laughs> You've already said too much. And, and truly, it, I, if I had said that last piece, it would have been out of place because now I was getting a little ticked. <laughs> and and it was I was it was starting to respond from self interest rather than from from the motive of uh, doing what God wanted me to do, and yes, I suffered for that. I suffered ill consequences, but I can't go back and and say I would do anything different if I had that yeah, situation right. before. And and that's the empowerment of God. Yeah, it has to be His work in our lives. Uh, it isn't something we can generate, and, and I think what has to happen is our relationship with him has to become so genuine. And by genuine, I mean it is not something I contrive. It's not something I engender. It is something completely created out of his love. That's, that's the bottom line. Because if I try to contrive it and try to make it up, it's a fake relationship. It is not a genuine relationship. And it will fall flat. I, I 
I simply can't carry it out. I, so that's that's what I'm, I'm gearing up for in, in a little over a year, is is to unpack uh, the nature of relationships and, and what is a genuine relationship and what is not a genuine relationship. I'm, I'm looking for all the helpful words and paradigms and everything I can find, illustrations. So if you have any, please, uh, please help me out. <laughs> because I want to make it as understandable uh, to everybody as possible. Yeah, and, you know, I think, Jean, what you said there, very often, whether the courage or whether, and you know, when, when he, uh, but he, he gives, you know, so much in the gospel, it isn't what we create or do, that he gives you that gift or gave you the courage, mm-hmm. and gave you the words, gave you the text. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yes. you just thank you, Jesus. And you say, I don't want to let him down. I love him, and he is yeah. so good. And it is uh, not only so. Uh, yeah, it, it's almost. Take that risk it's, it's almost, if I could describe the kind of relationship I'm talking about, it's almost like there's this invisible bond that has been developed because of his love for me that is so strong that I would have to rip that out of my life in order to not do what he empowers me to do. And and as long as I don't rip that out of my life and I and I nurture that, uh, it's almost it feels almost like an umbilical cord. Uh, and and as long as that umbilical cord is fed, in other words I allow that love in, allow that love in, I'm I'm capable of doing whatever he asks. You know what Gina be interesting because so often, particularly as Western people, we always fight against dependency, we're codependents, we have all this nastiness about dependency. But there is a, there is kind of an element. We're dependent on his love. We're, we're, de- we're, we're dependent absolutely. on his intimacy and relationship. Yeah, it's we right. need him. Right, right. <laughs> and, we're, you know, it was, in our world. It, it was Louis B. Speeds that taught me this uh, need-based love. I, I resisted it when I first encountered it. I was like, no, yeah. no, it's not need-based. No, no. And, and I, I wouldn't teach it. In, in fact, I, I think I told my students I didn't agree with him on it. Who, who is it? Lewis Meads. He's oh, an Lewis ethicist. Um, and I have, I've had students for years read his book uh, on ethics um, yeah. called Mere Morality, which is it's an excellent book on the Ten Commandments, basically, as the basis of morality. But he, he talks about this need-based love, and I, I had such a hard time with that, probably because I was terribly independent. Terribly independent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, as I was trying to understand the how sin is abuse and salvation is recovery from abuse and how, how we love because he first loved us, and that became kind of my favorite all-time text in the Bible uh, because to me it, it explains the whole dynamic of the law and our relationship to God and how it's engendered. I finally only in recent years came to realize, you know what? If we have no need, we have no love. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> that, that the absence of love is what creates the need. So the angels would never talk about it in language of need because they've always been connected. 
they don't, oh, they don't know the difference. It's they don't no know the thing. difference. They don't, they don't understand that concept as much. So why does the saying 34 let him deny himself? <laughs> Isn't the greatest denial of ourselves our willingness to admit our helplessness and our need? Mm -hmm. So the denial, it seems like that verse would take it really out of context or a misunderstanding. They're thinking denial like wear sackcloth and starve and, you know, just... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to face the pain. And, and, and I mentioned facing the pain, you know, and, and it works in physical therapy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you have to face the pain. But what enables you to face the pain is you know what you're going to get out of that. And we know that when we accept our need and, and we, we cry out to God in our need for love, that we're going to get it. There's no one he's ever turned down from that kind of prayer. But that's the only way we can truly deny ourselves, and that love is what enables us to deny ourselves. So, so uh, I would say there's a step Jesus doesn't address here that he does in the Beatitudes, hmm. and that is, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their spiritual need. Anything else in this verse before we move on? I just, I find it, especially this week, uh, I've been having a lot of problems and just difficulties with, with you know, understanding my place with God and, and understanding my role as, you know, a servant of God. And um, in verse 38, I just, when he says, uh, you know, Will you be ashamed of the gospel? Uh, I think this all goes back to starting to lose yourself, and because when when you uh, when you're ashamed of something, it's because you don't want that because it's not for you. And so when we start losing ourselves, <clears throat> excuse me, when we start losing ourselves and let <clears throat> and let God come into our lives, we're no longer ashamed because there's nothing that we need to focus on ourselves anymore so I think that you know we stop becoming ashamed and we go in boldness because it's not us going anymore it's God going through us and we're just saying you know what God I'm the vessel but you do the work and I, I think that was and, and one ingredient in that isn't it focus we're so focused and caught up in his love mm -hmm. and sharing that love with others that we cease to worry about what other people think about us. Because mm -hmm. we know we have a greater love. Uh, and, and, and once we're caught up in his love, we're enabled to love the people that would taunt us and ridicule us. And that enables us to realize they're hurting themselves worse than they're hurting us. Uh, that we can become bigger people. And there's kind of a zone... I remember as a young preacher, I was a bad, very bashful kid, and this was traumatic. I didn't come out of a ministry family or nothing. But there was, a, there was a ritual I had to go to, to, to preach. And that is this empty, where this is not about me. It's, it doesn't make a difference what people, I'm here to glorify God, I'm here to share His message. And I get in that zone, then it was a totally different, a different place. But it, it, it wasn't a natural, a natural thing was 
for us, in, you know, kind of insecure, bashful people, we're afraid to death what people are going to think, or I'm going to do a bad job, or I'm going to, we have all these messages going through our heads, and it is a real denying of self to mm-hmm. get to that zone. I think, just to expand a little bit on what you were saying, Dr. Sheldon, um, I forgot where I heard it, but someone said when we are full of God's love, there's no room for anything else. And so I think cool. you're right when you're saying, you know, when we, when we fill ourselves with God's love so much, even if we try to hate that person that is ridiculing us and making fun of us and persecuting us, there's no room. There, there's, there's, it's just physically impossible because our life is completely surrounded and focused in God's love. That's and I think that's something that's really that's amazing. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Well said. Well, shall we tackle uh, Mark ten seventeen to thirty one? And uh, Carlos, uh, why don't you read verses uh, seventeen to twenty two? As Jesus started on his way, a man ran to him and fell on on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the, man fa- the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Shalina, would you read 23 to 31, please? And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, "When With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with the persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Background on this text. Why are the disciples so amazed? And here's the key you need to know. In Jesus' day, if you were wealthy, it was because you were saved. That's Jewish. It's almost like the opposite where they said that if someone was born with the illness, it's because they were either them or they were sinners. Yeah. 
So the opposite is that if they're wealthy... Exactly. That is the, the clarity that God is blessing you, that he's smiling on you, that you are righteous, that you are above reproach, and therefore you have your ticket paid. So for Jesus to say it is harder for a, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It was like saying, you know, the guys you think are going there aren't. <laughs> and and it was it was just totally baffling. And another thing I have to point out, verse 18. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You're probably not aware of this. But you remember the refrain in Genesis 1 after each of the things God creates. And behold, it was very good. And behold, it was very good. There's one, there's one in that list that is not mentioned as very good. Uh, the light, the firmament, the land and the animals, the birds, everything in that list is very good except one thing. Human beings. Human beings. <laughs> I didn't think so. We, we're created in the image of God, male and female. Uh, you would think we would be pronounced very good. <laughs> We are kind of in a, in a catch-all way at the end of the chapter where it says, and behold, everything was very good. Um, but, but we're not singled out for goodness, uh, which is, to me, a foreshadowing of what is to come in chapter 3. We are not good because we have the power to choose evil. So when Jesus says, no one is good except God alone, I can't help but wonder if he isn't thinking Genesis 1. So what do, you, what do you learn in this passage about salvation? This is truly about salvation, right? It's uh, entering the kingdom of, of heaven, of God. Well, it's essentially like the reversal of what society or what culture makes it out to be. Mm-hmm. Jesus always likes to, to shift the paradigm or to really, um, turn our view of the world upside down. Yeah, if you really understand the Bible... It is completely countercultural. Always. Mm-hmm. Where it is not countercultural, it's because the people have balked and refused to go along, and God has allowed them to have their choice. Uh, but it, the rest of the time, it's counter, countercultural. Yeah, I think 27 there, where Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible but not with God, all things are possible, talking about, you know, um, I think what we were just talking about, that whether it's saving yourself or changing yourself or... Empowering yourself. Empowering or... yourself, the whole, that whole model, just, he says it just, uh, it, it's a false model. And, and what helps me, my ego, when I hear those words, because they're, they're, I think I think there's almost this innate bent to no I don't I don't want to just it's it's got to be partly what I do you know yeah, we that want, type of we thing want some credit. Uh, we want some credit <laughs> uh, what helps me get away from that is to realize this is the way God created us to function 
This is the way the angels function. This is the way the beings on other planets function. They are so caught up in God's love. It's all about God. And, and mm -hmm. they don't think about themselves. And they don't, they're not trying to make the relationship work. Yeah, not, not, not gaining points or grades. And they're not trying to be good. They are good. Yeah. You know, I think it seems like the saints, uh, it will pop in my mind, I think the saints finally got it. You know, they, they take their crowns, they come into his presence and the celebration, they take and throw their crowns at his feet. Yes. Yeah, like, you know, they got it that this whole thing is not about them or what they've done or about him. Yeah, I used to I used to have trouble with the concept of having crowns in heaven because now you're now you're bringing that kingship model into heaven. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> I was like, why? Why is that going? And, and, I, and Sabbath schools you got jewels on your crowns, right? You good things, <laughs> right? And and stars on your crowns for all the souls you've won. And and in fact, I I drew a cartoon as a teenager of two women sitting on the front row of a church, and there's a baptism going on. And one woman turns to the other and says, there's another star for my crown. <laughs> um, yeah. Mocking that kind of yeah. perception. Mm -hmm. But the thing, the thing that dawned on me, if everybody wears a crown, there's no king. And what crowns become is an, a photo album. Wouldn't it be cool if every jewel on the crown had a picture of someone you had helped to connect to God. And that crown then became a symbol of all the relationships. Because there are no greater relationships than those that are made in terms of relating to God. That is, the, the closeness you have with a person over, over having this awesome picture of God, awesome understanding of his character, is so much greater than your, even your relationship with the closest family member. And of course, when we lay those crowns at his feet, it's because he intended all those relationships. We didn't. Yeah. We were simply me, instrumental and used by him. What bothers me is this whole concept that uh, having things and crowns and properties and so forth, and I get to heaven, I got a crown, and I look around, well, he's got 400,000 stones there. I got two. Or maybe I got none. I don't know. It just seems like the concept sets up still a competitive thing. He did more than I did, and I did more than he did. And I, How specific is the crown, really, in the translations? <laughs> Can you find a verse in the Bible that says all this? Well, I, I don't think so. I, I, <laughs> is this a really biblical that we're going to have a star competition? It's just, uh, I mean, it sounds all wonderful, say, that because of love and that, but still, the concepts that we have crowns, well, as he's throwing his down, I notice he's got a lot more jewels than I do. It's just, uh, it's got to be something more to the crowns than just the concept that how many people I helped save or helped out. Or, but I think, I think it also, like, our understanding of it right now is from a different perspective than what we would have in heaven. Because I think in, in heaven, it goes back to the, the self versus the other-centered. And I think in heaven, we're going to be so enwrapped in his love and so enwrapped in, in all these things that essentially we're kind of just celebrating each other. Like, oh, good for you that 
you do all these things, and it's more of a right. celebration together than I think. That and, and I think a lot of the place in the Bible is just helping us with our limited knowledge and with understanding. With our, our yeah. very economic-based <laughs> eco yeah. perception, and perception of reality. And perception of reality. And so he, God really has, if he's going to reach us, he has to reach us on something we can comprehend. Yeah. Right. And symbols and, right. and that. Yeah. I remember in sociology, I just say that there's a huge book called this. I remember it. I think I've still got it because I don't throw things away. Huge book called The Symbols of Man. And we're just loaded with symbols. And so. And sometimes the symbols are more important than people. Oh, absolutely. I, I liked your concept, but I think it's really hard for us we, you know, because we, we fight that battle all the time with self, with sin, with selfishness. And you know, what is it like to you know your change in the moment, the twinkle of an eye? So much happens at the resurrection, or as nature change. If you're in that that nature, you never have a selfish thought. You never. You know, you wouldn't care if someone had, you know, a thousand stones and you had two. Oh, man, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> You're able, the Lord blessed you to be able to have the joy of bringing all these people to Jesus. And, uh, you know, it's all, it's all different. And we always, we always fight that. You know? I, I think even on top of that, you said, you know, we're going to be happy for each other that, yeah. you know... Mm -hmm. But on top of that, even just on top of not just being happy for each other, but being happy that we got these people to God. We were able to be an influence in this dark world to connect someone to their father. And that's more important than, uh, you know, what you did, because now it's not, again, about what I did or what we did. It's about what he's doing. You know, maybe what we're looking at yeah. is, is the one the one thing that some will have a wistfulness of, and, and I can unpack this carefully. You think of the thief on the cross. He's going to be tickled, red, pink, <laughs> blue, whatever. He's going to be tickled to be in heaven, right? But isn't he going to at some time say, if only I had gotten this sooner? Think of the joy I would now have. Yeah. Now, granted, that thief on the cross has won how many souls? <laughs> Probably more than I have. Um, but sometimes I've heard it said, and, and this came out of my generation, uh, growing up in a rather legalistic mode, that, um, you know, what we, we started during my teenage years, we started having people coming out of the drug culture and having conversion, marvelous conversion experiences and telling their stories. And, and it was like, well, what good does it do for me to stay in the church and be a faithful Seventh-day Adventist? And, you know, I don't get all this, uh, you know, hoopla over me because I'm, I'm faithful and, and so on. It's sort of like the elder brother syndrome in, in the parable of the prodigal son. Um, and yet... I think there's something to be said if, if we have a close walk with God, if we have that love experience and his, his love envelops us and draw, has drawn us in. I think of it as drawing us in uh, rather than us grabbing hold of it. That love has drawn us in and we have become so focused on him and on others that we have spent our whole lives 
just enriched and in, in, in getting increasingly enriched, knowing him more and more and making him known more and more and, and facilitating that love and, and acting that love out in our lives. And when we get to heaven, we will enjoy heaven on a level that the thief on the cross can only look at and all. Is it, and that's not a reward. That's simply the natural consequence of having a day-by-day close walk with God. And so I think there's, rather than negating that and saying, well, that's not so important, it is important. The stronger the relationship, the longer you know him, the more you have the capacity to know him, and the more you have the capacity to know him, the more you can understand him throughout eternity. It's, and it's not something, again, that we can engender. It's, it's being drawn in and, and allowing uh, this relationship to take place and, and uh, that thirst to know him. Gene, uh, I think that's true, and there's, I think the, the, the other side of it, too, when you see the thief on the cross... I had a just most radical client I've ever had. He got killed just recently after he committed to Jesus. But you look, one of the things in working with him for months, I would just stand in amazement, and I'm not new at doing this, that you'd see the radical, the radical grace of Jesus in the life of this person who any of us would anybody in this community they made fun of they they put him down they isolated him they you know the kid with learning disabilities and stuff they grew up here and was a huge drug person and just terrible mm-hmm. and when the, the lord the lord's grace to just encounter him and change his heart you know like who comes to thief from the cross you know it's as though you're celebrating this incredible grace of God <laughs> when you see these people you say wow <laughs> his grace like, I think Paul must have kind of felt that way because he'd yeah, he felt facilitate killing people and he says oh, the late, yeah, you know chief of sinners chief of sinners man but he still accepts me loves me mm-hmm. uses him <laughs> can we can we say that a person who has forever been in the church is the, still the chief of sinners because yeah, pride, yeah, yeah, yeah. pride is, and, and so, yeah. so this, this who will be closest to Jesus has more to do the depths of which we've come and recognized yeah. that God has been able to set yeah. us free. Yeah. 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 And so there might be a Paul, so Paul, whom we think had a lifelong relationship with Jesus in a sense, standing right next to the thief on the cross. And next to your client, um, enjoying that. Well, I quite sure. Yes, <laughs> one minute after. Uh, well, this has been good, and uh, we're going to end up with the last of Mark uh, next time. So we'll be moving into Luke. We're actually making some progress. <laughs> of course, Mark is a short book. Yeah. It didn't take us long to get through it. Uh, John, we're going to slow down. I can just predict it. Uh, how, can, how can you move faster, John? So we're in the, what, third year? <laughs> I've stopped counting. <laughs> okay, let's bow our heads. Father, we know that 
whatever state we are in, as long as we've put our trust in you and, and been drawn into your love. And that love has shown out of our lives to others. We know that whatever state we find ourselves in, whatever, whatever on any kind of human scale of worth we find ourselves, we know that when we get to see you face to face, you will so absorb us. You will so uh, embrace us in your, in your love and your presence that we will forget anything that ever troubled us, that ever uh, caused us to feel our lack. And we will realize that you have fulfilled all our needs. You have fulfilled every aspect of everything we wanted. We pray that we might begin that journey here in a fuller and more meaningful way. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.